Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Stocks are up, giving a little bit of a pop, although, you know, really the action is underneath the surface. There has been a rotation out of those momentum names, tech, for example, and into value led by banks. Interestingly enough, we are getting a little bit of yield curve steepening, but uh, not not a whole lot to justify the move that we have seen. We are so lucky to have with us Anwiti Bahugana. She is Senior uh, Portfolio Manager and Head of Multi-Asset Strategy at Columbia Threadneedle Investments, uh, which oversees almost five hundred billion dollars. Anwiti, thank you so much for being with us. I want to just uh, start with what's getting you excited right now. I mean, in this sort of trade out of momentum and into value, do you think of this as something that has legs? Uh, very short term, Lisa. I have been watching this rotation as well. And um, on the equity front, it's value versus growth, but if you look at the bond market, it's really quite correlated to what's happening to rates. And we have seen a few days now of sustained sell-off in um, bonds, which is leading this rotation um, in the stocks also. And really the drivers for both markets is the same. It is some sense um, in the markets of reduced risk, de-escalation of some of the issues that had dominated um, folks' mindset in August. So Anwiti, we've seen, as you mentioned, some uh, you know rotations driven by rates. What is your kind of economic backdrop in your base case? We've seen the consumer really kind of supporting this economy despite in the, in the face of kind of what is some weakening manufacturing data. Right. So that's why I'm a little uh, skeptical of the rotation that we are seeing right now. It's definitely worth watching. But what would get me really excited to answer Lisa's question would be if we begin to see some improvement on the economic front. And that, Paul, still remains to be seen. In fact, if you look at the data that's been released in September um, so far, we're beginning to see cracks on the consumer side of the economy also. We saw a leg down in consumer sentiment in the Michigan survey for August. And if we look at the payroll report, we are seeing slowdown in hiring also. So I would be super excited if we see improvement in economic data. That would give me confidence that the move we are seeing in rates is sustainable and that would make uh, more sense to me than one that's probably based more on, um, you know, a sense of de-escalation, even though none of the underlying issues in my mind have been resolved. Okay, so given the fact that you don't necessarily see a sea change underpinning the move that we have seen, are you selling, for example, bank stocks into the rally and are you buying bonds? We are maintaining very much uh, the mindset we had in August, which is that we are slightly underweight equities. And for us, Lisa, at an aggregate level, that would be selling equities on rallies and buying bonds. So that's what, that's the, that's what you've been doing, for example. Yes, okay. that's right. So, and would you just, you know, we talk about, the, you know, what are the key drivers for this market? And, you know, we can't escape the fact that 
uh, global trade uh, tensions, discussions between the U.S. and China, uh, more likely than not, are you know kind of influencing day-to-day moves in the market. How are you discounting kind of in Europe-based case outlook, kind of what is a very uncertain uh, trade environment between U.S. and China? Um, it has been very difficult to get that call right, Paul. Um, so we are staying out of it. We don't see um, any improvement other than really just the mood music on, on the trade front, that it's no real substantial movement on the trade front. There's a lot of back and forth. We don't believe we would see a substantial deal anytime soon. And so we are staying underweight uh, risk assets in our portfolios. It would be helpful if um, we see the Brexit issues get resolved, but you know, even there, the only positive that I've seen is that there is some lowering of the risk of um, no deal, hard Brexit. But by and large, uh, the thing that's giving us most confidence really is the fact that the Fed is staying accommodative. Fed's not, uh, Fed's done a complete pivot on their strategy since the beginning of the year and is um, maintaining a policy stance which is supportive of risk. That prevents us from getting uh, too nervous about the markets yeah. because there is a backstop. So given the fact that the Fed is likely to remain accommodative and perhaps provide even more accommodation in the very near near term, I'm wondering how you feel about credit right now. You talked about buying bonds. Does that extend to riskier bonds at a time uh, when companies such as, for example, today, Kraft Heinz is looking to push out their maturities, sell longer dated debt, and lock in these lower borrowing costs? Yes, I think companies, Lisa, are doing a uh, really good, um, you know, good job taking advantage of the yield environment. I think we still don't really like the riskier segments of the credit market, such as high yield. Uh, we're staying in the investment grade and securitized space and, and plain old treasury bonds, mainly because we can see more accommodation this year and even more next year, but that would really just mean that the economic conditions continue to deteriorate and the uh, trade issues continue to escalate. So that is not really a very encouraging environment for longer-term health of the economy. Um, In that scenario, you know, Fed's easing even more aggressively or getting even more accommodative, that is likely because the other two issues have not been resolved. And that's not a great environment for the riskier segments of the bond market. So I was that's kind of where I was going to go, uh, Unwitty. Emerging markets, there's been some debate whether, you know, the the, the the lower rate environment we had been experiencing was conducive to emerging markets, but the performance just hasn't been there. What is your view on emerging markets? Very similar views as in high yield, Paul. I would also be uh, cautious on emerging markets. You know, they are actually bearing the brunt of this trade trade escalation. Uh, there is dislocation in their exports and what's happening um, with the global trade slowdown. So there is no reason to uh, take a lot of risk in that space also at this point in the cycle. 
We are speaking with Anwiti Bahuganash, Senior Portfolio Manager and Head of Multi-Asset Strategy at Columbia Threadneedle Investments, which oversees $468 billion uh, based in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, and today is is quite a day uh, on Wall Street. We're remembering 9-11 and interspersed throughout the day. Uh, we are having moments of silence that are incredibly poignant for everybody who experienced what happened 18 years ago. Hard to believe it was 18 years ago. Anwiti, I want to shift gears a little bit away from just sort of allocations to the ECB because everyone is on high alert for what the Fed, what the ECB is willing to do in terms of accelerating their stimulus, whether they're going to cut the deposit rate further, whether they're going to add uh, some to, to their quantitative easing or purchase even stocks. What are you expecting out of the ECB? Um, not as much as I think the market is expecting. I think, you know, they will do some rate cuts and maybe a little bit more QE. And I've seen Lisa very different estimates of the range of QE. Uh, deposit cuts of 20 basis points is quite likely. I, th- I think if they do a little more QE, uh, that would be supportive of uh, risk assets in Europe. But if you look at risk assets in Europe, and I mean away from uh, bonds, looking at European equities, they've been performing quite well. In fact, they are neck to neck with uh, U.S. stock markets. So I think uh, risk assets are pricing in more accommodation from ECB and that would be sort of Draghi's parting gift to um, monetary policy in that space. Okay, but what happens actually, this raises a good question, what happens if the ECB disappoints? I mean, how big of a sell-off could we be looking at? Well, it's, I wouldn't be able to give a sense of the sell-off, but I really, really doubt that they would disappoint enormously. I think they would still go through about $30 billion or so per month in QE. And I think that we would see deposit cut, rate cuts, which is, you know, perhaps given the noise of uh, some opposition by some of the shadow policymakers um, and fair amount of debate within ECB on whether they should be doing this or not is not fully priced in. So Anwiti, you know, we seem to be having a global race to lower rates uh, to the bottom. How effective do you think continued rate cuts are to address what could be slowing economies? So, so there are there are small band-aids, Paul, and they can help if broader economic health remains, um, you know, well maintained. In other words, we are seeing this de- de- deceleration of growth, even in the U.S., from where we were at three percent to now to two two and a quarter or so, and uh, you know, back to sort of trend growth around the best performing economies of the world are seeing below trend growth or trend growth, but we are not in recession. And that's sort of the support all this accommodation is providing, while at the same time we are seeing change, see change in how global trade is conducted. So there is, to your point, limits to how much help they can give. Uh, they can support, they can be there with lower rates, lower rates are not really holding back businesses. It's the uncertainty around the bigger question of trade that's holding back businesses. Anwiti Bahuguna, thank you so much for joining us. Anwiti is Senior Portfolio Manager and Head of Multi-Asset Strategy for Columbia Threadneedle Investments based in Boston, Massachusetts.
Right now, it's interesting to sh just to remember that over the trailing 12 months, uh, the S&P 500 hasn't really moved that much. We've had a tremendous amount of volatility in that time, but essentially unchanged over the trailing 12 months. What? But yet we are about a you know, one and a half percent from the all-time high. So the question is kind of where do we go from here and can we expect more volatility going forward? There's no one better to discuss some of those market issues than Ken Fisher. Ken is a founder, executive chairman, and co-CIO of Fisher Investments with $107 billion uh, under management uh, based in Woodside, California. But joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, Ken, thanks so much for being here. So there's a lot of folks, I think, trying to figure out what the next step is for the equity markets, for example, we've had uh, trade issues. We've got an easing Fed. We were 10 plus years into an economic cycle. What are you advising your clients? Well, I certainly don't think we have an easing Fed. I don't believe that for a heartbeat. Okay. Uh, I mean, the Fed is um, idiotic at best uh, <laughs> and, and always has been. I learned that from Milton Friedman when I was very young. He always said they always would be. Uh, okay. And I, I, I'm going to stick with that. Okay. But the, the fact is that right now it's, fairly obvious if you think about it on a Bloomberg terminal that the non-US world for the first time is leading the American market and if we think of what's going on overseas what you were saying which is true when we think of the American market becomes more visibly directional if we think overseas so whether it's Sweden whether it's um, Germany whether it's Britain I mean Britain with all our Brexit yep. stuff the UK market's doing better than the US market is right so wait, now. So hold on a second. Let's let's translate it's, this. It's basically, basically, <laughs> it's leading us in terms of the ECB, the Bank of England, the Swedish, the all direction. of them. The direction is easy. The easier. direction of the market is positive and upward overseas more so than here. Here it looks like you're in that trading channel. Okay. There it looks like but it's why? broken out. Because it's not that the economy is so much better there. Oh, I think it's because just simply there's this fairly standard, but we, the economy being better, gee, who, who in the heck needs a better economy? We have a near Goldilocks economy as it is. If you could grow the global economy at 2% with no inflation, that's kind of what in the 90s we thought Goldilocks should look like. The fact of the matter is they've been having enough problems over there that at every place you've got the almost equivalent of having recognized a recession. It's not a recession, but it's that quasi- uh, growth recession, which is almost as positive for stocks after that as an actual recession. The history of big slowdowns grinding through. What what are what are recessions and bear markets supposed to do? They're supposed to overcome and fix the excesses of the prior boom. That's what's supposed to happen. Right now, we've got a comparable period where we're doing the same thing over there. How about here in the U.S.? Are you in the camp that it feels like a recession is a 2020 event for the U.S.? I would be stunned if we have a recession okay. here uh, in that time frame. Okay. The uh, fact of the matter is that there's really, other than the fact that things are going along pretty darn well, uh, for example, folks point to uh, manufacturing PMIs, right. uh, but if you think about it, services are three times larger, and service PMIs are just fine, thank you. Uh, when, if it were up to me and I were the Fed, 
I would dump all those stupid bonds that they bought that they never should have bought in the first right. place. Well, okay, well let's 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 talk about what you're actually doing or what you're actually advising your clients to do. And it sounds like you're bullish on Europe right now, given the fact that they're they're cheaper than the U.S. And no, they, I didn't they, say cheaper. Oh, that they that they're basically they have more bearishness sort of built into yep. them. Uh, so therefore, there's more potential upside. Uh, the U.S. maybe less so in terms of where we are in that cycle. Is right that here, accurate? Right, now. right here, right now. And, so- and we're also at a stage in the American political cycle where normally the market slows down for a little bit in America. Okay, so then how much are you advising uh, clients to overweight Europe over the U.S.? You know, I'm not that extreme. So, you know, I kind of have a 20% uh, overweight view. I, I don't want to be extreme. I don't have a, you know, hit big or go home bet in me because too often you go home and you're wrong too often. I mean, I, I live in a world where it's a world of probabilities, not certainties, and I got to be able to live through mistakes which I know I'm going to make a lot of. If I could, if I could be right 70% of history, which I can't, I'd be a, become a living legend. And <laughs> so I got to be prepared to be wrong at least 30% of the time um, and live through it. <laughs> okay, so you're close to a living legend, one could argue, certainly, uh, given your performance uh, and the assets under management. Uh, but Ken, so it, the question, one of the questions is simply, we've had a, just this week, it seems, at least on Bloomberg Radio, a discussion and on Bloomberg News about maybe a little bit of rotation going on underneath the surface. Sure. Kinda, what is your sense? Is that just, to me, it seems like, boy, people are making a big deal about what might just be some anomalous trading over a couple of days, but do you and see that, something more? And, and that might be true, uh, but... Pretty often after you've had a trading range like this where the prior leadership has stalled, you get a bounce-back effect. That's not extraordinary. And that bounce-back effect in this case would be value over growth, smaller over uh, big. That's been what's been going on in that rotation. Um, My guess is, however, usually if we assume the bull market continues, usually uh, the girl that brought you to the dance stays with you. And uh, that probably is what happens, which is that leadership then eventually reverts back. I mean, normally, as you move toward the end of a bull market, you get what is referred to as narrowing breadth. Fewer and fewer big stocks lead the market higher and higher, typically of the same categories that led earlier. So I'd expect over the course of the rest of the year for that process to eventually uh, revert. One thing I've been wondering, how often do you trade? Pardon me? How often do you trade? How as, often do as, you... As little as I can. Right. So when, when I was young, there was a great columnist for Forbes magazine named Lucian Hooper. He uh, was the third longest running columnist in Forbes history. Uh, and he had a lot of great... He was a New Englander. He had a lot of great lines. And one of them is, uh, you know, you make more money sitting on your hands than you do dancing on your feet. And th- there's a lot of truth to that. You, you make your bets. And unless you come to the realization that you were wrong in the first place, which should have some fundamental arguments to it, you let the volatility dance through you. So when was the last time that you traded? Oh, well, we trade little bits all the time wait, because wait, wait, we got but, a lot of money. But, 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 but in, in terms of in, a bigger in, trade, in yeah. Big trades, you know, we haven't done anything other than trimming uh, little things uh, for months. Is it less than usual? Yeah, because the market's not that volatile. People think the market's volatile, but the market's volatility this year is actually subnormal. And if you actually look at the market's volatility this year, it's not high. How about IPOs? Do you guys look at those oh, typically? No, you know, oh, I, no. when I wrote, I, I wrote a book uh, 32 years ago where I had a chapter uh, that said IPOs mean it's probably overpriced. And I still believe that's true. The fact of the matter is IPOs are priced for the issuer. They're not priced for the consumer. And uh, the the f- f- fact is, if if they want, if the history of IPOs is, is a short-term pop. And, you know, if you're going to try to trade a short-term pop, usually that's going to go against you. Look at what happened with Uber. Look what happened with Lyft. Uh, it, the, the good part about IPOs right now is that we 
have not gotten to that part where we're floating garbage uh, on top of the water like it's gold. Uh, it, it, the garbage isn't there. You know, we're not having manufactured IPOs for the purpose of going public in volume like you know, we do when we have exuberance. The lack of that is a sign of a lack of exuberance, which is healthy. Ken Fisher, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Ken Fisher is founder, executive chairman, and co-chief investment officer at Fisher Investments, which oversees $107 billion from Woodside, California. But he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Well, we woke up to a surprise deal in financial services this morning. Hong Kong Exchange has made an unexpected $36.6 billion bid for the London Stock Exchange, a move there that would upend the UK bourses combination just announced recently with Refinitiv. So to get the latest on what this means in the world of global exchanges, we welcome Sarah Syed. Sarah is a Bloomberg News reporter um, to get her sense. Sarah, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Just give us kind of the background on what happened here. This was really an unexpected uh, announcement, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, we were seeing uh, um, the words that are being used is the, the unexpected, the shock, the surprise. I mean, definitely had London scrambling around um, this morning. Certainly the, the the deals team woke up to, to some big news this morning. I mean, it, 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 as you mentioned, it is a bit of a, a shock um, announcement. It wasn't one that um, any of us or our competitors broke. It was a it was an announcement that came directly from from the Hong Kong Exchange um, itself. I think um, the timing is quite interesting. It it comes on the of, off the back of the the announcement about of the LSE Refinitiv deal. I think what's indicative of 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 the the timing of the announcement is. Um, had the Refinitiv LSE deal gone through, it would have made the LSE pretty much unaffordable for many other interested parties. Um, but whilst the deal is still um, not completely through, buying LSE by itself makes it a more affordable play than with together with Refinitiv. What's the what's the logic here for the Hong Kong exchanges? Well, I think, you know, Hong Kong, these are two of the world's most significant um, exchanges. And it really depends on what, I mean, it's clear what Hong Kong wants to do. They want to create a an exchange powerhouse. The question is, what does LSE want to do? I mean, the deal with Refinitiv meant, would have meant that um, the, the London exchange was, not only reliant on on the exchange, but diversifying into more data driven, a more data driven business. They need to now ask themselves, do we want to continue on that path and and this strategy that we had in play to diversify into more data, or do we want to grow and and become um, a exchange powerhouse by 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 being acquired um, by the Hong Kong exchange. Uh, we should note that Refinitiv is the old Thomson Reuters business, the Icon Terminal, and that uh, competes uh, directly uh, with Bloomberg uh, LP. Uh, Sarah, give us the sense of what the political overtones may be here, because this is 
you know, the London Stock Exchange is a, in a national treasure, if you will, for the UK and Hong Kong coming in and maybe even by extension, China coming in and buying such an iconic uh, UK asset. How do you think that's going to play out? It's definitely, a, an, uh, it would be an understatement to say that it is a, uh, a politically sensitive um, um, scenario for sure. Um, Hong Kong exchange is interestingly um, pitting itself as a global exchange, trying to move away from um, being a pure Hong Kong or, or Chinese um, entity. And I think that is to um, an extent placate um, London and the government uh, um, here for any concerns there may be about um, uh, there being a, a, a Chinese bidder for, um, I guess, this gem um, of, of in, in London. Um, you know, the UK government's Andrea Ledson said this morning um, on, on Bloomberg TV, just as the announcement was breaking, that it's something that they would um, look into and most likely scrutinise. So it's certainly not without um, any political um, issues or involvement. I think that there could also be a US angle with with, with CFIUS um, uh, um, coming into play. So yeah, from a political perspective, there's certainly, it would not, it's not a straightforward deal. It would not be a straightforward deal. And just to sort of wrap it up, with the $36.5 billion offer, how does it sort of sit with analysts? Do they think it's expensive? Do they think it's cheap? Um, I mean, a lot of the analysts' reports that we have read today have suggested that it's a deal that they don't think will go through for a number of reasons, politically um, um, being one of them. But, you know, they have also said, um, you know, that the UK is uh, an attractive market for some foreign investors at the moment, particularly um, with the drop. In in sterling, but the the Hong Kong exchanges, um, uh, Charles Lee set, made uh, an interesting metaphor earlier today, describing the potential tie up between Hong Kong and London as a corporate Romeo and Juliet. But I think we all know how that story ended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not not exactly auspicious. No, it's a bizarre. It was a bizarre connection to make. So yeah, let's see. Narrator. They both died. Sarah Syed, (laughs) thank you so much for being with us. Sarah Syed, Bloomberg News reporter, joining us to talk about the Hong Kong exchanges. Surprise a proposal to uh, combine with the London Stock Exchange analysts saying that it's unlikely uh, to see it come to fruition, but nonetheless, definitely shocking markets this morning and sort of uh, making them imagine the possibilities. Interesting to know what the business case is for a lot of these exchanges. It has increasingly become a data one uh, in terms of feeds and, and other market intelligence. We've been focusing on financial technology this week. We were earlier in Boston uh, at Boston's FinTech Week, which was really interesting as people sort of try to reimagine the way that the financial industry will look in the years to come. Joining us now uh, in that theme is Michael Tannenbaum. He is Chief Financial Officer of Brex, uh, based in San Francisco. Michael, thank you so much for being with us. Why don't you just start by telling us what Brex is? Sure. Brex is a credit card for early stage businesses like tech startups, life sciences companies, and e-commerce businesses. So Michael, what are kind of, what is your product, your card designed to do? Is there, is there a problem or a need in the marketplace for some of these startup companies that your card and your service tries to address? Yeah, I think it's really around both product underwriting and tech. So all three of those, 
On the product side, I think we're offering innovative rewards and technology and expense management that is targeted to these businesses. On the underwriting side, unlike most credit cards, we underwrite based on bank account rather than personal FICO or credit scores. Um, And the combination of that delivers a really high quality product experience for these customers, often who are fast growing but have limited uh, credit or operation history. So talk a little bit about the creation of Brex. I know that you have the support of some pretty uh, significant players in Silicon Valley. Yeah. So the, it's backed by uh, Peter Thiel and Max Levchin, the two co-founders of PayPal. We also had a bunch of investment from Silicon Valley and tech investors, including Y Combinator, DST, um, Kleiner Perkins. So a lot of big names that really saw the opportunity for credit cards to deliver more um, to these, these fast-growing segments of the economy. So, Michael, I'm just looking at the Brex website here, and it talks about higher limits, um, you know, 10 to 20 times higher than any competing card for a corporate card. So how do you get there? How do you get comfortable? What's your process, your underwriting process to get there? Yeah, it's interesting because when you think about counterparty risk as a lender, which ultimately we are in that respect, you want to look at the business rather than the person. So if you think about traditional credit card businesses, in the small, small business space, they're underwriting the founder or some executive as a person and using that personal credit score to make that decision. Brex is saying, no, we're going to look at the business and underwrite the cash that is in the business bank account. And because we're doing that, we can actually offer much higher limits than competitive cards, which are just underwriting people. So the business is our counterparty, and that's why we can offer higher limits. This is such an interesting conversation to be having at a time when a lot of cash burning uh, unicorns are trying to IPO and 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 come to market uh, to raise more money. And I and I have to wonder if you're looking at the actual cash of a company, how do you factor in potential growth? I mean, how do you sort of extrapolate out to see what this company may look like if you do extend them a loan and they're able to do something legitimate with it? Totally. I think. Well, one of the nice things about what we do is we have 30-day statement periods. So from our perspective, if you think about the way you know, financial markets work, it's a very short-term product. We're repricing it to some extent each 30 days because each 30 days opens a new statement cycle. And I think broader, when you think about the industry, what we do is we look at it two ways. One is on a cash basis, do you have money in your bank account? We have real-time access to that bank account. So we always know if the company can make their payment within 30 days. And then we also look at, for those companies that are further along and do have revenue, we look at forecasted sales, particularly in the e-commerce space, as a way to determine ability to pay. So, Michael, give us a sense of kind of how you're doing in the marketplace. When did you kind of enter this marketplace and how's Brex doing relative to competitors in terms of market share? Got it. So we have started, we started in early 2017. We launched publicly in mid 2018. We've had really tremendous growth. We've been one of the fastest growing uh, companies in Silicon Valley. If you look at the market today, as you've already indicated, there's a bit of a bifurcation between consumer and consumer facing businesses and those in the B2B space. We're serving businesses, and I think that the, soft, the financial software and underwriting that we've built in that space has um, been really, really attractive, 
especially as we've added newer markets outside of our core startup market to include the life sciences and the e-commerce sector. Who do you partner with for the capital? Got it. So our card is a MasterCard product. So anywhere MasterCard is accepted, um, you can use Brex. On the capital side, we actually have a warehouse line um, with Barclays where um, we use funds there um, to help expand our balance sheet. And in terms, and so I think that's one of the ways that we can continue to grow, but also do so in a low cost way that doesn't require as much equity. So what are some of the unique needs from a corporate credit perspective for some of these startup companies that uh, you're targeting? Sure. I think it's one, being able to get a card instantly and online. It's actually still a paper-based process. When you think about uh, applying for a credit card, you're usually, even if you're applying online, you're typically receiving something in the mail that lets you know whether you're approved. That's one. Two is the ability to scale with your businesses, with your business. Brex, because we underwrite based on a bank account with which we have real-time access, our credit limits dynamically adjust as the business grows. And I think the last is on rewards, which is always a popular topic among uh, you know, credit cards. And the reality is Brex has built a rewards program that has not only rewards um, and accelerators on categories that the people in this industry spend on, but it also has a lot of high quality sign up offers on um, the goods and services that these businesses use. One example being Amazon Web Services. Brex offers $5,000 of credits on AWS for all of its cardholders. Michael Tenenbaum, thank you so much for joining us. Michael is the Chief Financial Officer of Brex Incorporated based in San Francisco uh, with kind of a new take on the corporate credit card targeting um, the startup community and some of the unique needs that uh, some of these early stage companies have from a, a credit perspective. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.